Welcome to another episode. This week, I'll be talking to Natalie Zarelli from her New York apartment. Natalie writes about science, history, and the role women have played in both. She also likes to paint, draw, travel to northern places, eat fire, and lift lunchboxes with her tongue. It's intriguing, and there's much to discuss. So let's get started. I grew up in Brockton, Massachusetts, which is a little bit south of Boston. You know, I just decided I was going to leave home as soon as I could when I was 18 and moved to Boston and made it work. I don't think that's unique to me, but I think there is something to be said about believing that it's possible to do something and seeing it as a matter of course throughout your life and not as a mile marker while it's happening, because it doesn't really feel like a mile marker. Were your parents fascinated by the sideshow life? I'm sure I did talk to my mother and tell her I was leaving Boston. And I hadn't been living with her for a few years at that point. And I'm sure she went, oh, yes, okay. Because it it wasn't some sort of dramatic conversation or else it would have been more detailed in my mind. I also think she kind of went, oh, of course. (laughs) Of course. She probably had the normal mother worry, yeah, yeah, of what is my daughter doing now, but um, and wanting me to be safe and so on. But there wasn't a "What are you crazy? Why don't? Why are you doing that?" or anything like that. I think there was a lot more of "Oh, of course, <laughs> my daughter is <laughs> going to tour the country in this show that I've never heard of." My dad, I believe, he was just very happy that I was performing because my dad is a musician. My parents have been split up since I was. Uh, around eight years old but he's always been very involved in our lives in this over the phone at least I mean he was he moved to Florida when I was 14 so I would talk to him a lot and he was always really excited and really proud that I was doing this weird fire eating thing I think he was just happy to see me on a stage and I grew up very poor without a lot of money anyway it also was kind of like a an interesting thing, I think, in my family that I was going off and doing something that, you know, is sometimes inaccessible if you're just staying in one in one town and trying to make ends meet. What brought you into uh, the world of wonders? I was living in Boston and going to college, and I also had quite a few jobs going on at the same time and had a roommate and an apartment. I had this sort of horrible day where I lost my job and the relationship I had been in and my roommate who had to leave for financial reasons all in the same time frame. I was unsure of what I was going to do next. And one of my friends, uh, Chelsea Rammer, who uh, also performed at the World of Wonders and performs sometimes on her own now, she ate fire with the World of Wonders. And she said, well, why don't you come and join us? And she actually already taught me how to eat fire just for fun as her friend. And, you know, because there was nothing holding me in Boston, I said, of course, I'm gonna go. Yes, I'm gonna go to the sideshow. Yes, I'm gonna go eat fire. She brought me on the show. And I stayed for four seasons. It was really a good time. It was a good experience to have. That that's kind of pretty awesome. Just to like say, oh, fuck you, world. I'm off now. <laughs> yeah, it didn't occur to me like this is a crazy thing that I'm doing as much as it probably should have, I guess. It just seemed like this is the next thing I'm going to do. It sounds like a, an utterly fantastic thing to do. I mean, it uh, sounds like the, the probably just what you needed at that time. Yeah, it really was. It just it felt like this is exactly what I was supposed to be doing at that time. Almost like there was just this push of, well, 
this is everything's funneling into this and it made sense it didn't have it de- it definitely didn't feel like i made this you know hemming and hawing decision about am i going to go to the sideshow am i going to leave everything behind there wasn't any feeling like that it was more natural of course of this makes perfect sense for me. My sort of specialty act, I guess you would say, is being the iron tongue. And that is an act where um, it's kind of a strongman act. Strongman meaning doing unbelievable feats of strength with your body or unusual feats of strength with your body. What that entailed was uh, taking a very large fishing hook that's been filed down and putting it through my tongue piercing. Mm-hmm. And attached to that hook was a chain. And clipped to that chain was a fire extinguisher, and I would lift it and swing it all the way around, or swing it as high as I could on either side, which is usually a little past my head, and swing it until the crowd, you know, as loud as the crowd goes, the higher I will, is as high as I will get it. So the louder you are, the higher this weight is going to go into the air. And I would do that about 30 times a day. (laughs) I mean, obviously you train for that, but is there some sort of like tongue strengthening regimen you go on for that? Or does everybody have tongues that are that strong? Well, sort of. I mean, certainly the tongue can lift a lot, would be able to lift a lot more than one might think at first. But when I did first start, someone else had been doing it on the show occasionally. And he would also use his ear piercings. He had large gauged ear piercings and he would also uh, lift with both of his ears together, lift up a bowling ball or an iron. Uh, he saw that I had a tongue piercing and went, you can do this. Like, let me show you how. And he actually started off with uh, fishing weights and would mm-hmm. give me fishing weights. And I, then I had a metal kind of 1960s metal lunchbox so I could add more and more weight. Oh, inside the box. And see where my limits were. Yeah. Right. And so I just, and I kept kind of practicing there have been had been times in the beginning where I'd go, oh, my tongue's a little sore because <laughs> you're weight, you're doing weightlifting. <laughs> I guess uh, maybe fear might be that like, a, I mean, I would just be kind of freaked out that I my tongue would get torn or something. Would there be like a risk of that if you do it too quickly? Is the training more to see like what your limits are psychologically as well. There is an element of kind of exploration and kind of just not being afraid of trying something that the general public might agree is a little stupid. (laughs) 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 Like there is an element of that, but there is a danger with most of the acts at the same time if they're done incorrectly. And so if I'm swinging this very heavy weight, um, I have lifted a full fire extinguisher, um, which I think ends up being around 15 pounds. And I have lifted it fairly high while swinging it. And there's definitely a risk if the technique is wrong, if I'm not bringing it down in a full swoop and catching where it is, if somehow the force that's keeping it in sort of an arc, if that kind of broke or I shifted my weight or my head and it went straight down and the full force of that and the gravity was bringing it down, I'm sure that it could tear my tongue so you left your hometown what is that like being on the road i mean like i guess it's just a lot whole lot of driving around we drove the show around in a one-ton truck and in a semi-truck we would park the one-ton truck climb on top of it and unchain and unlock the stage which folded exactly up against the side of the truck it looked like it could have just been the side um, of the regular semi and the stage also had 
sections for curtains. So we would have a curtain separating the ugly wall of the semi-truck from the audience. So we would have like a true backstage area um, in the truck itself and then walk out. There would be curtains and then walk through the curtains and there would our audience be. And these, I take it, these people kind of became almost like your best friends, right? I mean, you you guys would be sleeping in, in fairly close quarters, like all the time, like sharing oh, yeah. the same bathroom, sharing the same kitchen situation, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, you get very, very close, very, very quickly. Time feels different on a traveling situ- show situation like that, which probably is the same for any group of people. I imagine it's similar when, you know, a band is traveling in certain circumstances. But um, this was also that your home was, you know, where you set up everywhere you went. So your neighbors was the, you know, your performing friend, co-workers that were beyond the plywood wall, beyond your bed. And yeah, you get really close very quickly and... It becomes, you know, it comes becomes like a family type of thing, I'd, I'd say sometimes, too. I mean, have you guys ever had situation where, like, you're traveling on the road and you're in this tiny little truck or this tiny little room and uh, the weather is just insane or, or some other strange situation occurs with animals or something like that? We had some animals on the show, just but they were snakes. We did have to care about and worry about them and them. Um, you know, if it was cold or if something was going on with the weather. But also with the tent, um, you know, we were in charge of making sure the tent was safe when it rained. You know, stuff like that would happen sometimes. If tent would start to flood or we'd be in the middle of a field in a at a fair and then the mud would just sink some of the poles and we'd have to readjust and ratchet up the um, supports to the tent. Or we'd have to go to the corner, sometimes during performing, if it was raining hard enough, and sort of use a broom to, like, push off the water when it was making the tent sag a little bit. One of the craziest times that we had an issue was actually at the end of the season. And we basically took our time taking the tent apart this time because it was the last spot. Everybody got everything out one day. The next day we were going to, you know, going to let the tent dry out overnight just to keep it from molding while it was in storage for the off season. And we all went to bed um, and I was in the the one-ton truck. And the one-ton truck had a small um, opening where we could see outside. You know, usually we'd be able to see the tent from inside the truck. But when I woke up that day, and when Chelsea, who was sharing the room with me, woke up that day, we didn't see the tent. And we thought, oh, no, (laughs) the guys started without us. Oh, no. (laughs) They took it down without us. That's okay. We're late or something. So we rushed to get ready and opened up the door to the one ton and walked outside. And the whole tent had flipped over poles and all and was flapping wildly against like the backside of the truck and the banners that we had uh, laid out to dry overnight had been, you know, covered in this paint somehow. And the wind had just picked up and blew underneath the tent and just flipped everything over. And it was insane. We had to, I mean, Tommy Breen was um, helping manage the show at the time. He now manages it full time, but he had to walk up this tent that was just blowing in the wind and barely on the ground. And, it was kind of a big mess. <laughs> it really sounds like you're almost in an army or something. You guys are almost at war sometimes when it comes to the weather. So you're all pitching in to try and save the tent. 
Yeah. And you're, I mean, there's some similarities with, I guess, maybe even being on the Navy. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> it's like your ship, I guess. Maybe it's a little corny or something to say, but it is kind of like that where you have to take care of the tent. The tent is really important. You have to maintain it. There was a small shower in the semi-truck. We would say that we were taking army showers because you couldn't just sit there. It wasn't like you had all this hot water going over you for 30 minutes. Like you were soaping up and then turning it on and washing yourself really quickly. The best was when um, we were at a fair that had livestock because they always had showers for people who were dealing with the livestock. So then we could just go over and take like a Usually like a quarter shower, like you take a, you know, it's like 50 cents or 25 cents. Oh, <laughs> wow. I've never even it. heard of that. That's a, yeah. that's neat. It's Life Mark, a made for TV podcast. Each week, two friends plus occasional guests watch the best and worst made for TV movies that Lifetime and the Hallmark Network have to offer. These movies have it all. Bad boyfriends, adopted babies, crimes of passion, women who own gluten-free bakeries. Watch along with us and subscribe to LifeMark on iTunes or wherever fine podcasts are sold. I mean, you are basically a freelance uh, writer, as far mm-hmm. as I can tell. I mean, I, I've seen your work in Atlas Obscura. Atlas Obscura is a great site. I, I love it. And uh, that's actually how I got to uh, discover you, because you did a uh, an article on Polybius, which is uh, this uh, famed and fabled video game in, in Seattle that uh, no one really quite knows if it really existed or not. It's really one of those wonderful examples of an urban legend where people have some sort of background or story that has a tiny bit of truth to it. And then over the years, especially with the internet, where people can kind of give their own input, their own like side of the story, it grows and grows and grows. And it doesn't even matter how many people say, okay, this definitely didn't exist, or this is exactly why this legend exists. Because there is some truth to sort of the weirdness surrounding video games at the time. But it doesn't even matter how many times somebody says, oh, this wasn't really, this wasn't a real video game as Polybius. It was all this other stuff. Because when that captures somebody, they hold on to it. And then it just continues as, you know, like Pop Rocks and, what is it, Pop Rocks and Soda? Like, if you drink that, you'll die because the Pop Rocks will (laughs) interact, which is not true. You won't die if that happens. So Polybius is one of those wonderful urban legends that started in Seattle because there actually were uh, kids in Seattle who were playing arcade games, The Tempest specifically, which had a lot of crazy vector graphics that just flashed at you, and it was like a puzzle game, uh, a lot of geometric figures. In the same arcade, in the same day, two kids did actually get rushed to the hospital. Um, one of them, I, be- I don't remember if one of them actually had a seizure or not, One of them definitely was rushed to the hospital because he had been playing for like over 20 hours straight and drinking nothing but (laughs) (laughs) Coca-Cola. At the same time, arcades were starting to kind of get investigated by the government because there was a lot of illegal gambling going on with the machines. So you have these two kids that get sick in Seattle after playing a game, and then you have these government officials coming around and inspecting all of the machines. Two totally unrelated circumstances. 
but, but when it, they converge, when they converge, it's really easy for somebody, probably other kids in the arcade, to kind of go, wait a minute, like what's going on with that machine? Something's happening there. There's the government is involved. Wait, maybe the machine was making the kids get sick and because the government's involved, it must have to do with mind control. And that's where it kind of started. So Polybius, no one's ever seen an image of the actual game. No one's seen an actual image of the game cabinet, but there are some people who have submitted pictures to different websites saying, this is, I have one of these, and then you never hear from them again. Um <laughs> I actually think that in a sense, even if Polybius isn't isn't a real thing, it is now a real thing. I mean, it, it's a legend, right? Yeah, so it might as well be a real thing. It's also a kind of great full story because there are other other things, other kernels of truth that, that kind of bolster it. United States did do mind control experiments on people with LSD just a few decades before right. the Polybius kind of legend may have grown. There are things like that that also kind of feed into like a larger sort of universe for people to understand through stories, which is what people do. People want to understand things. And they always understand them through stories. I mean, in Scotland, I, I also read on Atlas Obscura, you wrote about this, there were ice cream truck wars, I mean, in the 70s. The way I understand it is uh, you had these um, government sponsored housing they, mm -hmm. these were way off the grid kind of outside and and the people who lived there didn't always necessarily have all the means to transport themselves to get mm -hmm. common everyday items so what happened was the ice cream trucks or, or the lolly trucks as they might have called them they actually started providing common household goods in addition to ice cream in addition to drugs and stolen things as well Yes. So, and that became, it's almost like that was like a little mini mafia type of presence going on with the, with the ice cream trucks. It was very lucrative to have that business because like you say, they were very away from, you know, corner stores or anything like that. You know, there was a legitimate reason for the trucks to be there and to be selling something other than ice cream, but then it got territorial. And, uh, when that happened, there would be violent, violent um, outbursts from maybe like one ice cream gang on another if an ice cream truck wasn't where it was supposed to be or went into like kind of infringed on somebody's turf, you know, because this is actually something that happens elsewhere often enough, which I mean, when I started looking into this, I was really focusing on Scotland and looking at newspaper articles from the 80s. And they would always describe, you know, this one gang member like smashed a window and like cause like you know brought a gun into the situation got shot you know this whole car got shot up because of an ice cream war but it's more subtle in other places when there are ice cream battles like in new york we've had arrests we've had people you know one ice cream truck kind of pushing another off of its turf but you don't see this level of outward everybody knows what's happening violence that became the ice cream wars in scotland also, I noticed on your website, uh, I see this picture of just a pile of bones. I and a friend of mine, Alyssa Herbaly, who's a really wonderful photographer, went to Alaska. We hitchhiked from Anchorage down to Homer and spent like a about a month there just kind of camping on the beach 
And I brought my camera with me because at the time I would bring my camera pretty much everywhere I went. The bones are whale bones from, I believe, a blue whale. Me and Alyssa were walking down uh, a street in Homer, Alaska, and she went off to go, I believe, to the library. So I was on my, I, you know, went off on my own. And when I was walking, um, I went by the Natural History Museum of that town. And it was kind of had like a garage door opening area where like the wall was open and I just walked in and someone was doing a talk. So Lee Post was the man who was giving the talk and he told this fascinating story about how he came to Homer, volunteered with the National uh, Natural History Museum there. Uh, the museum had no idea what to do with this whale skeleton that they had in storage. They wanted to put it together, but they didn't know how. And he found out that not only did no one at his museum not know how to put a whale together, but none of the museums that he contacted could tell him because the last person that had been doing that for them died in the 18, like the late 1800s. So he spent a whole Alaskan winter slowly putting this together, calling museums, asking them about other large animals and experimenting with techniques and reinvented how to put the whale skeleton together. He was nice enough to let me um, go into his workshop. And what you see in that bone picture is sort of like a, there's a door that opens up in this shed <laughs> in the floor and you go underneath and there's just boxes of whale bones and sea lions and, you know, all cre porpoises and creatures that they were planning to put together. And I just decided to write the story up and pitch it to Atlas Obscura and they read it, and they really liked it, and they said, let's do more together, and that's kind of why I work for them now, or with them. You do a lot of great painting, too, a lot of watercolors by the looks of it. Um, oh, and <laughs> one that really struck me was a collection of these really creepy deep-sea deep creatures. Yeah, those fish with the big eyes. Yeah, those are all... Um, I'm doing a series right now on creatures from the Marianas Trench, and they do look like monsters, you know? And they, like, they're, but they're real creatures. And I paint them from, you know, usually using images um, from deep sea cameras as a reference. I really enjoy looking at our interaction with nature and as it being less of a man versus nature thing, but uh, more of a we're more like them than we like to think when them means other creatures that seem so strange. And that's kind of a big part of most of what I like to draw and my visual, the visual side of any of the art I make is kind of what happens when nature is really dangerous and goes beyond what we think. What happens when a creature looks horrifying, but it's kind of cute, and it's just living its life. It's not really horrifying. You had some really interesting pictures of, it looked like people who are kind of missing their tops. They, yeah. they, they just had like <laughs> spinal cords hanging out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was an old series too. Like I, I, I've been calling them the lady legs for some reason. It's always the lower half of women. It, it was in an exhibition called Sea Femme Art in New Orleans. Sea Femme Art was sort of feminist based art. I wasn't necessarily going for just a shocking image of women's legs <laughs> and gore, but there probably is a part of me that was um, intrigued by that when I happened to start drawing them. In my mind, it's almost like an alien race of beings that are just the lower half ladies' legs, and um, they have a full life, but it's also supposed to be a little bit funny. And they're always doing something that 
doesn't seem like it should be possible for them to do. Like there's one where there's a lot of them playing volleyball and the volleyball is in play, <laughs> but you never actually see them hit it because it's just a still. And it doesn't make sense that they should be able to play volleyball or a cooking show right. where they're all watching a cooking show, which doesn't make sense because they don't have eyes. <laughs> it's, very, it's very whimsical. <laughs> there is kind of like the, the feminism aspect of that with it because it's, you know, there's so many things not, you know, especially outside of like North America, like parts of North America, but if worldwide, there are so many things that women can't do and even anywhere that women feel like they can't do or not feel like but are restricted from doing and right. this kind of vi visual of that's somewhat exploitative of like the female form but then taking it in like a gross way and also putting them in settings where they're doing essentially whatever they want to do and living full lives alone was kind of an interesting thought <laughs> for me to try to bring out. I like it a lot. And and I mean, I think that we could probably delve into that a lot. Like, I think there's a lot there. The more I think about it, and the more you're bouncing these things off, the more I, I, I think that there, you could look at it and you could say, you know, well, their, their bodies, like, because you also, you have a very strict, like, mind, body, maybe I'm getting too metaphysical here, but it's like <laughs> you have this like strict mind-body division, like literally their bodies, their, the lower part of their bodies are like ripped off their heads, you know? So it's like... Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, and that's kind of much of what ends up being talked about when it comes to women, is the lower parts of our bodies. Right, exactly. What they can do, what that means about us. Is Are you a woman if you don't have that? You know, there's a lot, and which is of course, if you identify as a woman, you're a woman, but that's that sort of conversation always kind of centers around this really sexual part of what it is to be a woman. And maybe juxtaposing that with the shock of, of like a horror theme kind of makes it more apparent when you're looking at it, I hope anyway. What do you have going on? And uh, I mean, are there any gigs or, or, or what, what's going on in, in Natalie's life these days? I want to write for more magazines. I'd love to do collaborative writing projects and work on more creative writing projects, which I've started to do. And I am going to have a podcast of my own coming up fairly soon, but it's a little bit secret. So I'm going to wait to announce exactly what it's going to be about. Uh, but I'm very excited about that. I'm planning on doing more art. I'm going to be in a children's book coming up from a small publisher. And I'm excited to keep doing more projects. And, you know, and I would perform too. So I guess I'm a little all over the place. But I'd like to continue on this strange track that I've created for myself. Again, your website, your WordPress is nataliezarelli.com. I guess that's where people can go to just sort of check out what you're about and uh, what you've done and what you're doing in the future. Yeah, exactly. Natalie, thanks so, so much for being on the show. It was a real delight to listen to you. Thanks so much. It's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. That's the end of this week's interview. I hope you enjoyed it. You can visit Natalie's website at nataliezarelli.com. Remember, you can listen to this episode and previous ones too over at shareslicepodcast.com. Please go to shareslicepodcast.com and click on the iTunes link to leave us a rating or review there. 
or go to shareslicepodcast.com slash iTunes to take you right there. You can subscribe there too. It really goes a long way for the show, and it's free too. Remember the music for this episode is by Chromatics Music, and it's used with permission. That's K-R-O-M-A-T-I-K-S. You can find them over at SoundCloud. If you think you're interesting enough to be on the show or know someone who is, please contact me at shareslicepodcast.com slash contact. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you come back next week. <laughs>